brevity. You run out of time. At my age, I realize how fast life really goes, uh, quicker than you want it to go. When you're 20 years old, it seems like uh, uh, 50 years will be forever. Uh, when you're 50 years old, you look back and say, where did all that time go? Every day is passing. Every day of your life, you are spending time whether you intend to or not. Uh, you'll be a day older by the end of today and a day older by the next day. Uh, we are living in a time of a fast-paced world. And so the question becomes, how am I going to invest that time and use it properly and effectively? It's always a joy for uh, Donna and I to be here uh, to spend a weekend uh, not only with our family, uh, but with all of you. Uh, and a thrill to see what God has been doing uh, in these years at my church, uh, building this church uh, to the glory of God. But there are a lot of questions today about where in the world are, are things headed. Uh, the Middle East is out of control. Uh, you have a massive uh, people exodus uh, like has not occurred uh, since the days of World War I uh, and World War II. Uh, people often have asked the question throughout history, uh, what caused people in the ancient world to migrate all over the planet? And the answer is real simple, fear. Uh, they were running for their lives usually, uh, going from one place to another, uh, and it's still, even in our postmodern world today, still going on. We're asking a lot of questions about what's happening in this day and age, and there's a lot of wild stuff on the internet. Now, I've been in the ministry for over 40 years, so I've heard it all. Uh, people trying to guess the date of the second coming, they're never right, ever. Uh, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour of my coming. Now, I know what the text says, day and hour. So somebody says, ah, it doesn't say the year, so let's guess the year. Uh, and uh, no, the point of the passage is nobody knows the time, so don't waste your time trying to guess the time. Be ready all the time because Jesus could come at any time. Good, well-taught people, any time. That's the balance. You live in anticipation. He could come at any moment. Now, there are a lot of speculations about that. Well, didn't he say something about signs in the moon? Uh, and we'll look at that passage in a minute. Uh, and so everybody wants to guess, oh, there's a tetrad of blood moons, uh, and the fourth one is on September 28. So does that mean it's the end of the world? And the simple answer is no. Uh, it's not the end of the world. Uh, don't sell your house, marry off your kids, uh, and everything else uh, by September 28th. Now, Jesus could come on September 28th. He could also come today. Uh, he could come at any time. In fact, today is what the Jewish people call on their calendar, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the head of the new year, the Feast of Trumpets. And some people have observed uh, that Jesus in his first coming uh, fulfilled the three fall, uh, fall feast, spring feasts of the Jewish people, uh, he died on uh, Passover, he rose on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. So if the first coming of Christ fulfilled three of the Jewish feasts, would not the second coming fulfill the three fall feasts? 
And that's certainly a possibility at least. And uh, the first of those uh, is Rosh Hashanah, starts tonight, goes into tomorrow, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, because at the rapture there's a trumpet and the Lord comes to call us home. So some people have guessed, well, maybe the Lord will come on the Feast of Trumpets and begin to fulfill those fall feasts. And that's certainly a possibility, uh, but uh, that also uh, doesn't seem to fit well with keep watching for me to come because I could come at any time. Otherwise, if you can make it through tomorrow, you could say, well, I got another year. Uh, and uh, there's something about human nature that if we knew exactly when Jesus was going to come, uh, we would uh, wait till the last moment. Uh, you say, why doesn't the Bible give us a date? Because God knows human nature. Let's say that the real date, let's just pick a date, was 2020. Jesus was going to come back in 2020. Some of you wouldn't get saved till New Year's Eve of 2019. Uh, you'd wait till the last minute uh, and say, well, I got about five more minutes. Uh, I better say yes, uh, etc." But you might not live that long, so he never gives us a date, but he does give us indications. So I want to talk to you this morning about signs of the times. It's a phrase Jesus himself used. Uh, and uh, I want to call our attention, first of all, uh, to a passage uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, where Jesus talked about signs of his first coming. Uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day who do not believe that he really is the Messiah. Now, the people did. The people were thrilled and excited, and they'd seen a number of his miracles. And the leaders have heard about these miracles. So they come to him in Matthew 16, and basically the challenge is, show us a miracle, and we'll believe in you. It says this in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees, two groups of Jewish leaders who normally didn't even get along with each other, uh, came to Jesus and tested him by asking, show us a sign from heaven. Now the word sign in the original Greek New Testament is the word for a miracle. Uh, do a miracle. And maybe you've thought, well, if I could ever really see a miracle, then I'd believe in God. Not necessarily. There were a lot of people who saw Jesus' miracles and believed, but there were a lot of people who saw his miracles and did not believe. The miracle alone will not convert you. The power of the Spirit of God has to do that, to convict our hearts uh, of a need of a Savior, to convince us of sin, draw us to the source of righteousness, and give us the gift of forgiveness and salvation. Uh, they were saying, do a miracle and we'll believe. And he replied to them, hmm, interesting. When it's evening, uh, you say it'll be fair weather today because the sky is red or there's a clear, bright sunset, so you predict the weather will be clear. But in the morning, if it's cloudy and the sky is cloudy and red and lowering, then you say, oh, it'll be a rainy day. You can interpret the face or appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And there's that phrase. And if you like to mark things in your Bible, you might underline that phrase. Jesus himself 
uses the phrase. But in the context of that passage, he was saying you cannot discern the signs of the first coming. They were religious leaders. They were supposed to know the Bible. In their case, the Old Testament. There are over a hundred predictions of the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, they missed it, is what he was saying. All those signs and indications that should have told them it was the time for the Messiah to come. And Jesus then indicts them because they've missed the signs of the times in their generation. And then he said to them, I'm only going to give you one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. No miracles today, no magic tricks, I'm gone, goodbye, and he walked away. Now that had to stun them. What in the world did he mean by the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, that was that Old Testament prophet that ran away from God, ended up on the fish, burped up on the shore, uh, got a second chance. Uh, yeah, that kind of gets your attention. He prays the greatest prayer of the Old Testament uh, inside the fish. Help, I'm going to die. Uh, that kind of stuff. And even when he got the second chance, he still had a hard time with it. But the point was, after three days, he came back again. What Jesus was saying is to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if the sign of my resurrection does not eventually convince you that I really am the Savior, that I really am the Messiah, no other little miracle is going to convince you. That is the greatest miracle of all. This incident occurs about midway in his earthly ministry. As he comes down to the end of those three years of preaching and teaching, he then refers to signs again, only this time it's signs of his second coming. And that passage is in the Gospel of Luke uh, in chapter 21. In Luke 21, uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die for our sins. And he gives this challenge in Luke 21, verse 25. He said there will be signs there's that word again, in the sun uh, and the moon and the stars. That's why people get all wound up about the blood moon. It's just a moon that has a reddish cast to it because of a certain way the eclipse occurs, uh, etc. And they only occur once in a while. Uh, I don't think there's another one for like 30 years or something like that. Uh, and at some time in history, if something bad happened at that time, people said, well, maybe that was the sign. But there have been tetrads of four blood moons before nothing happened. Uh, it doesn't mean that what we're seeing today is necessarily a sign of the end. When you run ahead of God uh, and you say, well, it might be, that's one thing. But to say it is going to be and then it isn't, then people give up. Uh, and they throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, I'm not going to even think about the second coming of Christ. What about that guy that predicted 2011 and nothing happened? Hey, I go all the way back to the Jehovah's Witnesses back in 1975, said Jesus was going to come in 1975. They put 50,000 people in Dodger Stadium uh, awaiting his coming and nothing happened. Uh, and people walked out of there mad and gave up on God in some cases. I've talked to some of them that live out in California who said I was there as a kid when that happened. Or the guy that wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 
1988. Uh, he had 88 reasons. They were interesting reasons. But if you start with a false premise, it doesn't matter how many arguments you have, you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion. Uh, and he had the wrong premise, so the whole thing didn't work. Same thing with 2011, etc. The Bible is not written for our curiosity so we can guess the date and one-up everybody. Like, ha I know the date, uh, and I'm ready. Are you really? Uh, probably not. Uh, and then it's not written to scare us. It's written to prepare us. Uh, Prophecy is not meant to frighten us. It's meant to invite us. Come to Christ while there's hope, while there's time. Jesus said there will come a time when there will be signs on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity like the roaring and tossing of the sea, like a tsunami out of control. Uh, situations will be so bad, the world will be in chaos and out of control. Uh, people will literally begin to panic uh, at what is coming, uh, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken, and at that time, the Son of Man will be coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place. Then stand up. Look up for your redemption, your salvation draws near. In other words, Jesus was saying, there will come a time before my return when there will be obvious signs of my coming. You don't panic. You don't run and hide in a cave. You look up in anticipation you make sure you're ready for me to come. Jesus himself said, keep watching for me to come, be ready for me to come at any time. Now, throughout history, there have been times of confusion and chaos and war and difficulty. The depravity of the human nature always leads to that. But uh, I would like to suggest to you this morning five signs that I think are clearly taught in the Bible that tell us at least that the clock is ticking, uh, that we are moving ultimately toward His return. And even though we cannot set any dates and we can't over-speculate on what the plan of God is time-wise, we can discern that certain things in the Bible have to be fulfilled prophetically before He returns. And I think five of them, at least, are happening today that ought to get our attention. Sign number one uh, is the rebirth of the nation of Israel back in the promised land. You say, why is that significant? Because for almost 2,000 years, there was no Israel on a map. When the Jewish people revolted against the Roman Empire and the Roman army came in, in 70 AD, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They banished the Jews, drove them out of what had been Israel, changed the name of the country to Palestina or Palestine, uh, and uh, tried to remove all memory of the Jewish people ever having been in that land. Uh, and as the centuries passed, and they were scattered all over the planet, people assumed that's the end. They'll never return. And yet in all the Bible prophecies about the end times, the assumption always is 
there will be an Israel in the last days. Uh, that when the Messiah returns, he comes back to Israel. That the final conflicts of the end times will take place in the Middle East. That they'll involve Israel. There's a prophecy at the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66 and verse 8. Uh, and that passage says this, Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? But as soon as Zion, the name for Israel, travailed, she brought forth her children. Isaiah's writing that 2,700 years ago. Looking down through the corridor of time by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he foresees a day when the nation of Israel will come back to the land and be reborn in the land as a nation in one day. That one day occurred in May 1948, when after all those centuries of Israel not being a country, they declared their independence, and in one day, the nation was physically reborn. Now, some will say, but Ed, um, aren't most of them there in unbelief today? Yes, many of them are. Some are atheists. Some are hardcore Orthodox Jews, and they're not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. But there are many Messianic Jews that believe that He is the Messiah. Uh, I had the privilege of preaching there uh, a little over two years ago uh, with Tim LaHaye in a rally in Tel Aviv to 2,000 people in Israel. Uh, in the invitation, 60 people came forward to declare Jesus as their Savior in Israel. Uh, there are Messianic congregations springing up all over that nation. The gospel is going forth. Uh, our television broadcast of our show, The King is Coming, uh, goes into Jerusalem every Sunday night from the island of Cyprus. And hundreds of people are watching. The Jewish people are curious about who really is Jesus. Uh, what did he say? What did he stand for? Uh, what did he? And most Jews today will say, well, I agree he should not have been crucified. They did the wrong thing. Uh, he was a good person. But they're not convinced that he really was the Son of God. Uh, the hit for them is, how can God become incarnate in human flesh and walk among us? Well, part of the answer is, how did God, in the Old Testament, appear in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve and walk with them and talk to them? How did a divine person stand before Joshua as he was about to conquer the promised land and say, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, and Joshua bows and worships him, and he's there in visible, physical form. God, at times, has stepped down into the fallenness of our humanity to reach out to us, to say to us, I love you, and I care about you, that's why I'm here. And ultimately, he steps down as the baby in a box in a barn in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and born in the town of Bethlehem that's clear in the Old Testament. That he would ride into town on a donkey. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. All of those prophecies literally came true in the life of Jesus. A hundred and nine of them 
altogether. And yet to the generation of his day, he had to say, you missed the signs of the first coming. Whatever you do, don't miss the signs of the second coming. One of those signs, one day Israel will return to the land. She's been there now for a little over 65 years. That ought to get our attention. Sign number two, rumors of war in the Middle East. Uh, you say, well, the Middle East has often been in tension and chaos and problems. Right. But the chaos today is at the highest level ever because it's no longer simply confined to the Middle East. For 1,300 years, Islam has been at war with the rest of the world. This is not new, but it was generally confined to the Middle East. Oh, for a period of time, they conquered Greece, but then later lost it. They conquered Spain, but later they lost it. Uh, they conquered Israel uh, and eventually lost it. That's why they're upset about that. Uh, they are bent ultimately on world conquest. Now, that doesn't mean every Muslim uh, is a bad person. Uh, Donna and I, last May, uh, spent two weeks in Turkey. Uh, we traveled to see the sites of the seven churches uh, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a beautiful country. People were extremely friendly, uh, glad to have us there. Uh, but it was interesting to make some observations while we were there. Some of the Syrian refugees that you're hearing about now on the news had come across the border into Turkey, and they were on the street begging. And uh, the Turkish guides, who are themselves Muslims, would look at them and say, ah, illegals, don't give them any money. Uh, if you want, that's up to you. I give them nothing. They should not be in our country. We don't want them. Islam is not a loving, embracing religion. Why are all those people trying to flee into Europe right now? Because they think we'll have a better opportunity in Europe. Well, why doesn't Saudi Arabia take them in? They have billions of dollars. Why not the Emirates? Why not Turkey? Those are Islamic countries. Where are the Islamic leaders coming to the fore saying, we need to rescue all these people. These are our people. They're not doing it. They're letting everybody else do it. Now, I realize somebody's got to do it. I understand all of that. But the fact that the Middle East is in chaos today ought to get our attention because it is not going to go away. Uh, some people in the current administration said, well, if you pull the troops out of the Middle East, then they'll be happy uh, and they'll calm down. So you pull the troops out and there's chaos. Uh, it's out of control. That was the only controlling factor that you had there. You say, well, Ed, why is that important in the Bible? Because prophecies of the end times tell us that ultimately the greatest crises of the future will all take place in the Middle East. There may be wars and rumors of wars all over the planet, but the big ones in the Bible, the Battle of Gog and Magog, Iran against Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the geographies in the Middle East, the Battle of Armageddon, the geography is in the Middle East. In fact, the prophet Zechariah looked down to the corridor of time, and in Zechariah chapter 12, 
Like he said this, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people round about. In other words, they cannot hold the cup without spilling it over. Uh, and uh, they shall be in siege both against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. In other words, nobody can lift it without cutting themselves. Uh, and uh, even though all people on earth be gathered against it. The prophet foresaw a time when eventually the crisis in the Middle East would accelerate out of control and Israel would be in the crosshairs and there would be a conflict in the Middle East. We're not there yet, but everything seems to be what? Moving in that direction, that that's ultimately the final target. You see, in Islamic religion, the belief is anything we've ever conquered in the name of Allah and the prophet Muhammad belongs to us. So anything we ever lost, Israel, which used to be part of Islamic territory, or uh, Spain, or Greece, needs to be taken back in the name of the prophet. And then ultimately, the world needs to be conquered in the name of the prophet. If you go to his Islamic websites, they're all over the place calling for world conquest and world domination. In our world of jet airplane travel, uh, internet communications, uh, instantaneous connection to the planet, the problem is not going to go away. They've been cutting off people's heads for 1,300 years in the Middle East. 600 years after the time of Jesus, Muhammad came along and said, Jesus was a prophet, but I'm the prophet. The Bible may be a word from God, but the Quran is the ultimate word from God. Our religion upstages your religion. And we have the only way to heaven. And yet in Islamic teaching, the teaching is very few people will ever make it to paradise. A few men and hardly any women. It's the most female demeaning religion on the planet. Uh, and in that religion, the goal is conquer the world in the name of the prophet and then you'll have world peace because you'll have total control. So the problem is not going to solve itself. It's not going to quickly go away. You can't just have the United Nations say, let's just get together, have a group hug and sing Kumbaya and everybody will be happy. Uh, it's not going to work that way. The Middle East is in turmoil. Now, if I were reading Bible prophecy and Israel did not exist, and the Middle East was quiet and peaceful, I'd wonder, when in the world's ever this going to be fulfilled? Israel does exist. The Middle East is in chaos. Number three, uh, the uh, revival of the European Union. You say, what in the world does that have to do with Bible prophecy? Well, the Bible predicts that ultimately the old Roman Empire will be revived in the last days uh, and that the world leader in the future will come out of that union. Uh, the Antichrist figure, as he's called in the Bible, is not a Muslim. Uh, everybody always wants to demonize whoever our enemy is. If it's communist, then the Antichrist is a communist. If it's Muslims, oh, the Antichrist is a Muslim. No, the Antichrist is not religious. The Bible says in Daniel 11, he does not honor the God of his fathers or any God. He ultimately thinks he's God. 
He's a secularist and an atheist who doesn't believe in any God. He's not Jewish, he's obviously not Christian, and he's not Islamic. Uh, he is a world leader who will arise on the scene one day in Europe out of the old Roman Empire. You say, how do you know that? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was given a prediction that eventually the Messiah would come 500 years later, Jesus, and be killed. That was a shocking prophecy. And that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And the people that destroyed it would be the people from whom the prince would come who would be the ruler in the end times. That means that the Romans destroyed the temple, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and it's out of that Roman Empire and the nations that were part of it that the world leader will come at the time of the end. Now I realize the European Union is unstable at times, but it never collapses. It continues to march on. Uh, it's the European Union that's now saying, we'll take in all these refugees. Uh, it's the European Union that has a constitution uh, as thick as a telephone book, and yet not one mention of God in it anywhere. A totally secular society. You spend any time in Europe at all yourself, you realize the churches are empty, many of them are closed, religion is in the toilet, uh, and it is a secular culture, and it's a culture that is spiritually empty and very dark and very capable of producing that kind of leader in the future. Sign number four, the global economy uh, and the reality of it. Uh, you say, uh, well, what's that got to do with Bible prophecy? Well, I think of a verse like Revelation 13 that eventually says, apart from the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, nobody can do what? Buy or sell anything. It's economic. That ultimately, the world leader of the end times is going to control the world economically uh, and politically. He's not going to conquer the world in war. He's going to conquer the world in a global economy. Well, if there were not a global economy, that would not be possible. But the global economy already exists. The clothes we're all wearing were made all over the planet. Look at the labels. Uh, we already have a global economy. Uh, and it's becoming more and more a cashless society. It is driven by electronics. In fact, where is your money right now? It's out there in cyberspace someplace. Uh, who knows where it is? You get a printout, uh, and uh, it goes up and lately down. Uh, and what all? Where'd all that money go? Uh, it's electronically driven, etc. It's only a matter of time in an economic crisis when somebody will impose something. I don't know if it's a computer chip, that's speculation, uh, or if it's a mark on your hand or a tattoo or a whatever, uh, but something has to be done. They've got a retina scanner. They can read your eyeball now. Uh, they can read your teeth. Uh, they can read your face, uh, etc. whatever, whatever, whatever. It already exists. Now, the economy's not evil in and of itself, but if the wrong people control it, they control the world. Four things that get my attention. Israel's back in the land. The Middle East is in crisis. The idea of the European Union reviving the old Roman Empire is already in process. And the global economy already exists. Those are like flashing warning lights. If you were driving from here into Atlanta uh, and you're going up 85 
and eventually you see a bunch of flashing lights uh, saying, slow down, construction zone, which happens up there all the time. Uh, it's a warning. Be prepared for what's coming up ahead. These are like flashing lights in the Bible to at least get our attention so that we're prepared. Not that we panic, not that we overreact, but not that we under-respond. Uh, there are some people walking around saying, well, I don't think there are any signs of His coming. No, I think it's pretty obvious there are many. Now, I realize the older you are here this morning, the sooner you want Jesus to come back because you're running out of time. Uh, I get that. Is it coming soon? Uh, whatever. The younger you are, you're in no hurry for Him to come. You've got your whole life to live, kids to raise. Uh, you're still in high school. Uh, you want to get married and all that stuff. He's not going to come before I get married, is He? You know, six months after you're married, you want to know how soon is He coming? Uh, you know, that can change. A God that loves you enough to send His Son to the cross to die for your sins loves you enough. He'll come back when the time is right. But if I were debating somebody on this issue... And they said, okay, I see your four points. What's the slam dunk? Convince me. I would suggest, unfortunately, the reality of weapons of mass destruction. They've already been invented. They already exist. You say, well, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about nuclear weapons, does it? No, not specifically. But think of a verse like Revelation, the eighth chapter. In that passage about the trumpet judgments, uh, it talks about a time in the future. Uh, it says, And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire, mingled with blood, and a third of the trees burned up, and all of the grass burned up. Now, that certainly sounds to me like the effects of nuclear devastation. What else is going to burn up all the vegetation? You read on in that chapter... The air is polluted. You can't see the sun or the moon part of the day and night. Uh, the fresh water in the rivers is polluted. The oceans are polluted. Some horrible thing has happened and has affected one-third of the entire planet. Now, we all know that we live on a powder cake, but we don't like to think about that. We like to kind of pretend that's not really a problem. There are 23,000 nuclear weapons on the planet right now. So we can disarm and get rid of 2,000 or 3,000. How many does it take to blow up the whole world? About five. Uh, that's all. Uh, we're way over-armed to the hilt on this planet. Now, we need to be for our own self-protection. And the good news about nuclear weapons is, so far, everybody's afraid to use them because they know what will happen if somebody responds. But that doesn't eliminate... The reality of them. How many nations have a nuclear weapon? Eight, nine, ten? What happens when Iran gets one? What happens if they give one to the terrorists? What happens when 20 nations have them? What happens when a dozen Middle Eastern nations have them? It is only a matter of time till somebody somewhere is crazy enough to push the button. Now, I pray that it doesn't happen in our lifetime, uh, that God continues to give us a window of peace and opportunity. But as America walks away from God more and more and more, why should He keep His hand of protection on us? When the majority of the general public 
acts like there is no God and I don't care about the person of God and the plans of God and the principles of God and we keep changing our laws to secularize our country more and more and more we're asking for the hand of judgment. Now God is a loving God and in His love and grace He withholds judgment and withholds but once a people goes beyond the line of no return and they're never going to come back God gives up on them it says in Romans 1 and He lets them go unto themselves until they destroy themselves. Now you and I as believers have a challenge to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the meantime. We have an opportunity to live out our faith so that people see in us the reality of the power of God in our lives so that they might be drawn to the Savior. But we also have to be realistic about the fact that we're living at a time when we're marching, slouching slowly toward Gomorrah, so to speak. We are walking away from God as a society just like Europe did in the last 50 years. And if we keep it up, we'll be just like them. The hope is for individuals who will say, no, I care more about my family, about our lives, about our nation, and I'm willing to commit myself to the cause of Christ because that's the only thing that will give hope for the future. Jesus went to the cross and took on Himself our sins, died in our place, in essence to say that I love you and I care about you. That whatever's gone wrong in your life, I can make right. Even when the first human couple, Adam and Eve, had sinned against God, God did not abandon them in the garden. He came down to the garden calling to them to come to Him. In essence, God was saying, I can fix this if you'll let me. But I'm going to give you the choice. You decide whether you want me to do that or not. In their case, they submitted to the fix. When Jesus comes down to the cross, He's doing the same thing. He's taking our sin, our rebellion, our failure on Himself and saying, I'll do for you what I'm not asking you to do. I'll die in your place. I'll offer you forgiveness. I'll offer you a brand new life. And once you're at peace with God, you can be at peace with one another. You can be at peace with the world in which you live. We need more people of peace who have made peace with God, whose soul is submitted to Him, surrendered to Him, and we sense the stillness of God's blessing so that every day of life is a gift from God that I live to His glory and whatever the future holds. It might hold cancer, it might hold a car accident, it might hold a disaster, it might hold incredible success and blessing. But there are no guarantees without the power of Christ and the power of the cross. That's the only thing that will ultimately guarantee your future destiny with Him. And so I want to challenge you this morning. The things in the prophetic part of the Bible, and that's one-fourth of the Bible, it's a lot of the Bible, are written, the Scripture says, for our admonition so that we might be ready to meet Him when He comes. Jesus' appeal always finally is when you see things begin to happen and you wonder where the world is going, look up, be prepared, 
be ready, keep watching, pray that you escape those things that are coming on the world in the future. Well, that only happens when there's a connection with the God who controls the future, who sees the future, who predicts the future, and who can give you and I a real future, a real hope. People love to quote today, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, to bless you, to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. You've heard that verse. You ever read the context? You ever read that chapter? The Babylonians were at the gates of Jerusalem. They were about to destroy the whole city. They were going to destroy the first temple. This is before the Romans came. Uh, everything was going wrong, but God was still going right. And even in the midst of impending disaster, God was saying, the plans that I have for you individually are wonderful plans to sustain you no matter what happens in the world in which you and I live. So the question is, as the future comes at us, am I ready to face the future? Because I know the one who holds the future. Does he hold me in his hand? Let's take a minute. We'll bow our heads. We'll talk to him and uh, let him search your heart uh, and challenge your heart and your mind. Dear God, we realize that the world is not what we would like it to be. There's so many wonderful things about it. Uh, the joy of the fall season. Here in Georgia, it's not any more beautiful anywhere on the planet. Uh, the thrill we have of raising a family to the glory of God, and yet we realize the future is precarious without you. And so I pray that you might, first of all, speak to believers this morning, that we might be people of prayer who are willing to go to our knees to call out on you and to ask you to spare this nation and bless this nation and bring America really to a point of genuine repentance where we really desire to live our lives to your glory and honor as you intended. And then I pray for those that are wrestling with those choices that this day you'd speak to their heart and that this might be a day when they would say, here's my life. I'm tired of living it my own way. God, I'm ready to accept the freedom, the forgiveness, the salvation that you offer to me freely. You're giving me a free choice. And today, by your grace, I want to say yes to that. I'm ready to open my heart and mind and say, I'm ready to receive the one that I believe is the Son of God, the one who could see the future, the one who knows the future, the one who holds the future. I want him to hold my life and my family in his hands. And as we wait in prayer for a moment, you let God speak to your heart. You've never come to the point of saying yes to that offer, to that opportunity, uh, to really know him personally. I want to urge you, no better time than today, right now, to open your heart to him and say, I'm ready to say yes to the Savior. And say, Ed, I, I really am ready to do that. How would I do that? The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you have to call. A preacher can't pray you into heaven. You have to call. You have to ask. And when you do, he always says, yes, I'm ready to receive you unto myself. Maybe right there at your seat. You might call on him in your heart 
in your own words, something like this, Dear God, I, I really do believe that you do love me, that Jesus died for my sins, and I want to accept the forgiveness that he offers. I want to say yes to him today as my personal Savior. I'm inviting him into my heart and life by faith today. I'm ready to make that commitment. I'm ready to say yes, and I mean that with all my heart. Pray that by faith. Pray it in Jesus' name. Pray it with the confidence of an amen. God will hear you. God will answer. Now realize as we pray, I'm, I'm a guest today, but if you are praying that right now, and you'd say, Ed, I prayed that, I mean that, I said yes today, would you just slip your hand up quickly and let me see it? God bless you. I want to rejoice with you. Yes, yes, yes. Several people. God bless each one of you. Nail that down today, this day, September 13th, 2015. On that day, I made that decision. I meant it with all of my heart. I said yes, and that's my intention from this day forward. Let somebody know about your choice. Let other believers rejoice with you and pray with you. Father, I want to pray for every man and woman to raise their hand just now. God, I pray that you'd give them grace to live out that decision, give them strength for the future, and I pray that whatever challenges they face in life, they might know you are there walking with them every step of the way. And God, we pray that you might grant grace and peace, even when we don't deserve it as a nation, that you might help us as believers to be part of the salt of the earth, to make a difference in this country while we still have an opportunity to do that. For those that have invested their service uh, in the armed forces, we want to thank you for those that you've protected, that you've brought home again. God, I pray that you might continue to use them to your glory and honor. For those of us in the workforce, for those of us in ministry, for those who are raising a family, we want to put them in your hands and we want to say, God, we need your blessing. We need your guidance every step of the way for the years ahead. For we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Woo! Wow. Papa Ed for president. <laughs> no. No, that's... We don't want that to happen. I saw two little boys walking out this morning in our lobby before church started, and they had handcuffed each other. My fear was that the rumor would get out that that's what happen, that happens when kids get disorderly in the church. But I had a thought a moment ago as we were closing this service out. Some of you came in today, and you were like those little boys. You kind of you were locked up. You had no hope of future. But as a church, I'd love to celebrate at least 10 of you today that have found freedom in Christ. Can we just celebrate you? Wow. I love, you know, I love my wife and I love my kids, but I love you, our church. And the reason we would bring in a, a gentleman like my dad, my father-in-law, is because we want this church to know that through Christ we have hope. We have hope. 
and that we can, found, we can find freedom and grace and salvation, not in a prophecy, not in a prayer, but in a person. And my hope is that we would get jacked up, fired up, that every man, woman, and child in this city and abroad would come to know Jesus as a loving, personal Savior. Our host teams are going to come. We're going to close with an offering. And can I just say, put your money where your mouth is. As Christ's followers, we should be, we should be the most generous people on the planet. Syrian refugees ought to be running to America. They ought to be running to our church, right? Because at the end of the day, the reason Jesus has not come back yet is because his grace is saying, I'm hoping for one more need about, one more person to make my name famous, one more person that would give their hope in their life and find salvation in me. Let's pray. God, use us to make a difference, not only in this city, but in the world. I pray the men would rise up and rally in this church that we would break free from our junk and we would put, our, we would put our, our eyes on you. God, I pray the women would rise up in this church. I pray that, God, I pray that you would use us powerfully to make a difference. I think of Jed who's on the piano right now, his brothers and his sisters who are not Christians today. And if you did come back in two weeks, God, I've got a lot of friends of my own. God, I pray that as we end this message today as we start it start this conversation for the next three years of the three weeks of this series brevity god would you help us live our lives expecting that every moment of every day is yours and the reason we have life and we can conquer death and we can conquer sin is because you came and conquered all those things already for us we give you our lives today in jesus name we pray and everybody said amen